So I want to begin today by telling you that Starbucks nearly killed my prayer life. (laughs) My son, who now is a chef, got his start in the food service industry by working at Starbucks. And uh, being a coffee connoisseur, it was a great job for him. And so over a period of several months, he began to teach me something about the ethic that Starbucks teaches their employees as it relates to customer relations. And it was a great insight for me, and I learned quite a bit from him about that, none of which he intended to teach me, really. But uh, as, as we began to deepen our discussions about what happened with him as an employee of Starbucks and how he was trained to handle customers, uh, it began to worm its way into my prayer life. And uh, I'll, I'll close with how that happened, but let me just give you a little insight here at the beginning as to some of the things that he said that, that were instructive to me. One of the things that he said, and I began to notice because he said, Dad, I want you to pay attention. When you walk into a Starbucks, pay attention to the way they greet you as you come in and especially as to how you give an order. And so I watched and I began to see this common thread. And I've noticed lately that they still do that. I don't know if they all still do that, but some of them do. And here's what they were trained to say. As you walk up and you're ready to buy a $4 cup of coffee, they say, what can I get started for you today? Now, behind that question, what can I get started for you today, is an ethic that essentially says, as an employee of this chain of coffee stores, I want to communicate to you that you are the most important part of this day. What can I get started for you? You just, I'm putting my own words into their mouths now, you just tell us what you want and we will make it happen for you. What can I get started for you today? Over a period of time, as I paid attention to that, I began to see how that that mentality begins to work on us, the customer. Starbucks made it worse because, actually it's better as far as customer relations goes and customer service goes, but it was worse for me in what I was learning from it all because one of the other things I began to notice was that Starbucks has this basic philosophy, and that is that if your drink order is not right, we will make it right. You just tell us, if we put soy milk instead of almond milk in your coffee, I don't know why you'd ruin coffee with milk anyway, but that's beside the point. If we use the wrong kind of milk, you just tell us and we will make it right for you. Many times they would say exactly those words, we'll make it right. And I watched as one customer after another would complain. You ever met customers like that? Customers who complain about something as trivial as what kind of milk goes into coffee? Well, here's part of the lesson that I learned. And the reason I say that it nearly killed my prayer life is because I began to notice that many times I and we as Christian people buy into that customer consumer orientation that says, if God doesn't get it right, then I'll just keep badgering him until he does. It probably is a great strategy for selling coffee. 
What can I get started for you today? We'll make it right. It's probably a great strategy for selling coffee, but I'm not convinced that it's a great strategy for growing in our spiritual lives. To approach God in such a way that essentially makes him to be a divine waiter. God, what can you get started for me today? God, make it right. So I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that I think helps us with that. But as we go to this particular passage, and it's another step in our series we've entitled Slanted, we're looking at the parables that Jesus told, but we're not just looking at them so that we can be aware of what the parables were. We're looking at these because Jesus teaches fundamental truths about how to live the Christian life. If you're looking for some application into your spiritual life today, then look no further than Jesus' parable that we find in Luke chapter 11. Because I believe that when you couple what Jesus says with what we learn from Starbucks, it may well transform your prayer life. Now, let me just say before we get to Luke chapter 11, that it is a dangerous proposition for a pastor to preach about prayer. And I know that today. So I come in uh, a little bit cautious because I've found through the years that when you talk about prayer, people get a little bit defensive, and some people think, well, the preacher's telling me that I'm praying wrong. So if you don't hear anything else I say today, I hope you will, but if you don't, at least hear this. The best prayer that you can pray is the one that is honest with God at any given moment. God, I'm afraid. God, I'm mad. God, I'm whatever. Be honest with God. Be honest about your feelings. Be honest about what you're thinking. Be honest with God. That's the best prayer you can pray. But the reality also is that Jesus did some teaching about prayer. And so we want to look at what he says, and I hope that it will inform you and round out your prayer life as you go forward. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. One of his disciples caught him. I'm not reading anymore. I'm talking now. So one of his disciples, all of his disciples probably, caught him in the act of praying. Let me just challenge you as parents or grandparents. I challenge you to let your kids or your grandkids catch you praying. I can't even begin to number the times that I would get up early in the morning and walk into the living room and find my mother praying before the day got started. If you had sons like me and my brother, you'd be praying too before the day got started. Well, Jesus is praying, and they catch him praying. And it triggers an interesting response from his disciple. If we look through the Gospels, we find that there are very, very few. Matter of fact, some say this is the only time really that his disciples look to what Jesus is doing and say, teach us to do that. And it's about prayer. So back to verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And then Jesus turns now, and he gives them some instruction. Now, what we find here is a condensation, a condensed version of what most of us call the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And I'm not going to reteach or re-preach all of that today because I preached that in one of the early series when I first got here as we were looking through some parts of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think in particular it was on a Wednesday night as we looked at the Lord's Supper and, and over a period of weeks, excuse me, the Lord's Prayer, and over a period of weeks we unpacked that. But Jesus gives his disciples a condensed version of that teaching. And he said to them, verse 2, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This is really not the main part of the message, but there are things here that I do want us to get today. So listen carefully because I'm going to make up a new word right now. After I already made it up, I'm just going to share it with you. Two things, two different approaches that we must bring when we come to prayer. The first one is we need to be neely, K. N-E-E-L-Y. We need to be neely in our prayer lives. This is that posture that we take, not physically, although it's certainly fine to kneel when you pray, but it is a posture of the spirit, a posture of the mind where we kneel before God, and that act of kneeling is a way of us saying, I am not God. I relinquish my claim on the throne of my life. So we kneel before God. That's the first couple of statements. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We need to be kneeling. We approach God as he is God instead of as he is our divine waiter. Secondly, we need to be needy, needy. Spiritually, we find that here. Physically, our physical needs become part of our prayer lives. Our relational needs are part of our prayer life and that need that we have to be holy, to reflect the character of God. And all of those things come together in what Jesus has said in verses 2, 3, and 4. But he takes another step. And so far, so good, by the way, on the Starbucks approach to Christian living. Because just that model that Jesus gives there allows us to come to him and essentially say, here's what I want. I want you to help me let you be God. I want you to help me at my point of need, physically, spiritually, relationally, all of those kind of things. So, so far, so good on the Starbucks model. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. And as we come to the next few verses, what we find is this parable that Jesus tells, and it is a parable that has caused incredible consternation for Bible scholars ever since Jesus said it. And tonight, in our Bible study time at 6 o'clock, we'll talk a good answer, but here's what we find. Let's begin reading now in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now let me just stop there for a moment, and let's unpack a few things. Note that Jesus issues a question. It's a parable inside of a question. He turns to answer the direct request of his disciples, teach us to pray. He gives them the needy needy instruction. And then he says, here's a parable, but he couches it in the terms of a question. Who of you has a friend like this? 
then he gives us two options on the friend. One of those options is the friend who is, well, we'll call him a homeowner. He's the one who receives a guest in the middle of the night. The other one is that guy's friend, his next-door neighbor, probably. Let me just pause for a moment, and let's make sure that we recognize what a parable is that Jesus told. Always it was driven into and drawn out of daily life for these particular Jews. First century Jewish life, one of the things that was a hallmark of their society was the idea of hospitality. In the West, we struggle with this a little bit more than what they would have because in the West, we're much more individual in the way we look at things and the way we come at problems. But in first century Jewish life, hospitality was a given. In fact, it was so much of a given that Jesus tells a story that all of them, I think, would have had quick answers to. Who of you has a friend that if another person shows up in the middle of the night and you don't have the food for him, you would go to your next door neighbor? And they would have said, well, all of us are like that. All of them would have said, if I have a friend who comes by and I can't be hospitable to them, then I'm going to go find some help to do that. All of them would have said, that's us. But none of them would have said, I have a friend who would refuse to help when asked. See, that's the slant part of this parable. We'll get to that in just a few moments. But hospitality was such a thing for them that to have someone come and you not treat them well would have not only stained you, but it would have stained your village with a stigma that says they defied social norms. Jesus' parable comes right out of first century life and right up until the point where Jesus talks about the guy refusing to help, they would have been on board with him. You see, it's an unthinkable response to turn away a needy friend. So Jesus uses that as a slant, as a point of teaching. He he comes around the side and catches them a bit unawares with that little piece of information And verse 8 is what really helps us with that. And verse 8 happens to be the place that we struggle the most as far as interpretation, biblical scholarship. So let me go back to verse 8. Let's read it, and I'll highlight the word that gives us the problem. Jesus' response to that parable, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Impudence. Now, I'm going to go ahead and jump in to another version here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the King James Version, as I understand it, uses the word importunity. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand or anything like that, but I'm strongly suspicious about this. I suspect that none of us use the word impudence or importunity in a sentence this week. It's not a word that we're used to hearing. It's not a word that we're readily familiar with and able to hang some kind of a word picture on it that helps us understand what it is. Well, that shouldn't surprise us too much because we read other translations and they give us a totally different word there. The reason for this is because this is the only time in the New Testament this word is used. Only Jesus used this word and he only used it here. And so, the New American Standard Version uses the word persistence. Because of his persistence, he will get up and get food for his friend. 
The NIV gives us a little bit different idea. I believe it says the man's boldness moves him to act. What is the word, and what's the difference, really? Why is this parable turning on this one word, and we can't seem to nail it down? Let me give you some dictionary ideas of what the word impudence. That's the version, by the way, I use as English Standard Version. I teach and I preach out of that. And that word there is the impudence. And here's what the dictionary says about that word. These are words that are a little more familiar for you. One of them means boldness. One of them means sassiness. I just had a flash across my mind of my daughter's face. Nerve. Audacity. Rudeness. Disrespect. So to plug one of those words into that verse, Jesus says in verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his sassiness, yet because of his disrespect, he will get up. What in the world are we to make of that? What does Jesus mean with this parable? I think it's unfortunate that we have, some have taken this to mean persistence. Somehow, some have read into this parable because you can't pull it out of the parable. You have to read it in that it's a persistence kind of a thing. That in other words, as this friend goes next door to borrow food, bread, three little loaves, enough for one meal for one person, and he goes over in the middle of the night, some people say it's because of his persistence. It's his constant knocking on the door. It's his asking and asking and asking. But the parable doesn't bear that out. It doesn't even say that he knocked on the door. So to say it's persistence, you need some kind of support. And so often people will go to the next few verses to gather their support. So let me just read a little bit. Verse 9, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And so sometimes biblical scholars will say that's a constant knocking. That's a constant asking. It's a constant seeking. But again, the text doesn't necessarily bear that out. Are we to understand, let me pull it right down on the bottom shelf where we live. Are we to understand that Jesus is somehow teaching us that when we go to God, we have to just hammer down heaven's door until God finally relents and gives us what we want? Is it that prayer is supposed to be persistently badgering God until he gives us what we're asking. I'll submit to you that I believe that's exactly opposite of what Jesus is teaching here. And we might be able to go to other places in Scripture, even in Jesus' teaching, and make a case or almost make a case for that, but that's not what Jesus is teaching here in this particular text. The word, if, if you can allow me, to give a different little twist. It's not mine. It's what we find in research, but the word may well mean shamelessness. But I'm going to put a little twist on that. It's shamelessness with a touch of being moxie. The idea that Jesus seems to be using with this particular word is that the individual takes an aggressive posture with no concern on the impact 
it has on other people. An aggressive posture with no concern for the impact that it has on other people. I lived this out. I got to see it on two ends of an encounter. When I had finished my formal education process, one of my mentors in life uh, asked me to go on a tour of the seven churches of Revelation that are in modern-day Turkey, the western and southwestern part of the nation. And so we got on a plane and we took off and we had a good long tour of that and it was a great experience. But after we had finished visiting each one of those sites, we spent the last couple of days in Istanbul, Turkey. If you haven't been to Istanbul, let me tell you, there's a, there's a geographic feature that is striking for that and that is the Strait of Bosphorus. And the Strait of Bosphorus both connects and divides. It connects the Sea of Marmara which is to the south. And if you go far enough to the south through the Sea of Marmara, you get to the, the Mediterranean Sea. But it also, on the north side of Turkey, is the Black Sea, and the Straits of Bosphorus connect those two bodies of water. Because of that, the currents, we were told, the currents in the straits there are treacherous. Worldwide shipping occurs through that section, and uh, you have to be trained to be able to run a boat through that. That's important. Remember that little fact. But the Straits of Marmara, also, the Straits of Bosphorus also connect. They connect the city of Istanbul, which is on both sides of that straits. And on one side is the continent of Europe, and on the other side is the continent of Asia. So on the, one of the last days that we were on this tour, we loaded up on the boat because of the historical significance of that city. Great civilization center through the years of history, even since the time of Christ. It was Constantinople for a period of time. And so there are palaces and lots of history there. And so our guide wanted us to understand this tour boat. And it was one of those boats that you could get inside, but mostly they wanted you up on top where you could sit outside and watch everything. And, and so we had been going up and down for a while. It was supposed to be an all-afternoon trip. And I got tired, and we were just kind of out, it seemed. And so I, I, I found a place sitting on the steps going up to the wheelhouse where the, I guess the bridge or whatever the captain of the ship was, the boat was. And I sat there and the, the breeze off of the water was coming at me and it was really a pleasant experience and I was looking around just kind of taking it all in when I heard a commotion out of the wheelhouse above me about maybe five yards away. And I heard this commotion and it was yelling and it was screaming and I immediately thought to myself, they need my help up there. And then I fought the urge, and so I sat there for a little bit, and about maybe 15, 30 seconds later, one of the crew members came running past me up those steps and disappeared into the wheelhouse, and they were still yelling and shouting, and it was angry Turkish words. I don't know what they meant, but I was sure that it meant we were about to sink. And so I ran up the stairs to see if I could help. And as I rounded the corner, I looked into the wheelhouse, and our Turkish guide was in a life-and-death struggle with the captain of the boat. Our Turkish guide was taking it 
taking the worst part of that struggle. He was bleeding from the face and there were fists flying and this one crew member was trying to keep them separated. So I jumped into the fray and another one of our tour guys, not guide, but guys on our tour jumped in. Both of us are fairly good sized guys and we thought if nothing else, we can keep our guide from getting beat up and we'll be stranded in Turkey forever. It was a tough situation. And at one point I looked over and nobody was driving the boat. And I thought to myself, this is a treacherous place. I should get in there and drive it so that we don't run into something. And then God, through the Holy Spirit, said to me, you'll go to a Turkish prison for piracy if you do that. When we got, finally got to the banks, to the docks, and the law enforcement officials were there waiting for us, and they interviewed some of us. I found out that the whole problem there was that the boat captain displayed this word impudence because he threw our social sensibilities to the side as he stepped up and he essentially said, I don't care what the contract says. I'm tired of captaining this boat right now. We're going to cut the tour short, and we're going to go over, and we're going to be done. But our tour guide, who stood at that point of being sassy and had the audacity to expect the boat captain to honor the contract, he jumped into the fray. And so both of them, from either side of this one word, decided that it didn't matter what happened to anybody else, they were going to have their way. One on a positive side, one on a negative side. I think failure to grasp this, this little truth and this particular parable and its intent, failure to grasp this word may well leave us in a mindset that says, I get to decide what I want, and then I will just badger God because of my own shameless moxie. And I'll badger him until I get what I want. I think that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus intends here. Again, do this. This is where, where verses 9 and 10 come in. If we don't see verses 9 and 10 as saying just keep on asking until you get it and keep on seeking until you get it and keep on knocking, if indeed we take this the way I believe Jesus intends it and we read that then, I tell you, ask. Just ask. Seek. Just, just seek. When we take our request to God... We do so, here's the main truth of what we're saying this morning, so don't miss this. When we take our request to God, we do so from a posture that says, he's going to do what's best for me. I don't have to talk him into doing what I want because I know that he's my father. That's verses 11 and 13. Let's read those. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, I think what Jesus is teaching us here and what he modeled in his own prayer life is, I don't have to go beat heaven's door down to try to change God's mind about something. 
I can go to God trusting in his love for me, growing out of his character, I approach God in prayer. So it's less about what I want and more about what he wants because he's always going to want what is best for me. So let me go back to the Starbucks thing and tell you why Starbucks nearly killed my prayer life. It actually did kill off part of my prayer life because I began to see my own consumer orientation in prayer. So many of my prayers historically have been what I want. God, you know, I got this family member and they're suffering this health problem, so I want you to heal them. God, I have this own problem in my life. You know, I got this group of people over here. I just want you to strike them all dead. Make them suffer. Make them suffer. Excuse me, I didn't really say that out loud, did I? So much of our prayer lives degenerates into trying to talk God into what we want. Here's what else I learned from Starbucks. My son was a barista there. He moved his way into management, and we had lots of conversations about the Starbucks ethic. One of the things he began to teach me was that the baristas at Starbucks would get bored every once in a while, and they would start mixing different coffee drinks. Non-alcoholic, don't get upset, okay, just coffee. But they would start doing different things, different concoctions, if you will. Matter of fact, when I go to Starbucks today, I asked for a particular drink that he taught me about that was not on the menu, still not on the menu, but I learned about it from him. It's an incredible cup of coffee. I learned that from my son. And so, because I love my son and I trust him, and I trust him, I got to this point. When I would go to Starbucks and my son was waiting on me, I would say this, Brandon, what do I want today? And he would bring me whatever they were working on that he knew I would love. Never once when I asked him, what do I want today, did he give me something that I drank and I thought, that's horrible. He knows that I don't like milk and coffee. And so he never gave me one that was based on that. Every time, Brandon, what do I want today? Let me invite you to join me in making that your prayer every day. God, what do I want today? You see, that's a prayer that's based on an awareness of the character of God, that he would never give you something that was not ultimately for your good, that he would never put you in a position that would cause you to compromise your faith, that God always, always, always is looking out for what's best for you. Understanding that truth allows us to go before him and ask this, Father, what do I want today? Let's pray. And so my question to you today is, what do you want from God today? Maybe that some of us are here today and we just want relief. Life has taken its toll. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a relationship issue, a financial issue. 
any number of things, but life has a way of working us over, running us through the ringer. And it may be that your prayer today is, God, I need relief from this. The best prayer that you can pray is the honest one, so I think it's fine to pray, God, I need relief from this. But I just want to tell you that what God has designed for you is a life that is incredible, abundant, as John 10.10 says, it will blow your mind kind of life. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ in a personal way, you haven't reached that point in your life where you surrender your life to him, you've never been needly with him, then I want to say to you that your deepest need is a relationship with the living God, and that only comes through Jesus Christ. And we invite you to that relationship today. And this invitation time would be a great time for us to have a good discussion, begin the discussion with you to understand how you can have that life. And so as we stand and sing in just a few moments, we'll invite you to come and we'll talk with you, pray with you, begin that conversation. It may be that some of us are fighting battles in life and we've been knocking on heaven's door and trying to beat it down and persistent and yet God still doesn't seem to be answering. And so maybe this is a good time to just kind of kind of say, okay, Lord, I, if my approach has been wrong, I'm not saying it has been, but if it has been, help me to understand your heart for me in this. How are you praying? What are you seeking? And are you settling into the love of God? Father, during this time of invitation, with whatever decision needs to be made, we pray that you would give each of us the courage and the strength and the peace of mind we need to let you be God and help us to surrender into that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and sing, you come, whether it's to join the church, rededicate your life or prayer, whatever it is, this is a time of invitation. You come.